John uh, was invited to, uh, John, our youth group leader, was invited to uh, teach at a camp that he's been involved with in the past. And um, he took a group of kids from our church, and uh, I got a chance to talk to all of them, and they had a really, really good time. And um, John and I thought it would be a good idea to have them uh, come up and share with you their experience, and John's going to talk to you a little bit about the camp and uh, we'll get the kiddos on this mic here, Seth, and then John on the pulpit mic. So if those, that being said, why don't you guys come on up and we'll welcome them. I'm going to have them come up one at a time so they're just not standing up here. You ever stand up in front of people and you're like, what do I do with my arms? And they flop around you don't know what you're doing. So they'll come up one at a time. But there's so much to say about camp and so little time to do it right now today. But I tell you, it's, it was an amazing thing. Uh, God stretched me because this is the first time I ever spoke at camp. And man, that first week, and you get a message every night. I'd be leaning against the wall in the back, like, Whoa! I wanted to throw up and really yak everywhere, but I didn't. But I wanted to. But uh, we get up there, and, and we, uh, we, we kind of base camp off that Minions movie this summer. And the Minions were searching for a master. And Chloe, could you come up real quick? And, and the whole thing, go ahead and pull your hair up real close, come on, is uh, a Minion. A minion is a devoted follower of someone higher. That's what a minion is. Okay, thanks, Cole. And so uh, we got across to these kids. We're all minions. Because when it comes down to it, God created us for him. And so the moment we're born, we have a God-sized hole in our heart. And if we don't fill it with Christ, we're going to fill it with something else. We're going to fill it with toys. We're going to fill it with lustful desires. We're going to fill it with money. We're going to do something to try to fill that void that we have to fill. Everybody's got to fill it, and they're going to find something. And the, and the stress was fill it with Jesus. Fill it with Christ, because that's what it's there for. And uh, so we're all searching for something higher. We're just all minions. And I could go, I mean, we, we, we studied Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son. And unless you fully studied it, I, I grew so much because there's so much to that. And it's the whole verse, not just the story of the prodigal son. The first, the first verses, too, are just as important. And it was a great, great experience for me. And like I said, I could go on for, did you give me two hours or an hour and a half? How much time did you give me? Yeah, right. So, but instead of listening to me and, and sit there and go off on what I want to talk about, I'm going to let the kids come up and each share what, what, what Christ did in their life at this camp. And I could talk about this camp forever because it's just, it's a beautiful camp. And the focus is on Christ. Everything that they do, there's a lesson tied back into Christ. And there's a lot of fun. And there's just, I remember going there as a kid. These are the days when I had no home at night, and I would just wander around, and I'd go to this camp, and I just felt like, this is my place. This is where I belong. This camp changed my life um, as, as a young teenager. And so it was just a joy of my heart to bring not only my daughter, but the kids in the youth group, and just to be up there and remember when I sat in those pews as a lost, stinky little boy, and that's exactly what I was. And they asked me to speak last year, and it was just so amazing to me, and it was such a blessing. So I could go on and on. I have the gift of gab, but I'm going to hoosh now. I'm going to have Ashton come up. He's going to start this off. Hello, my name is Ashton Welch, and this was my first camp experience. I had fun making new friends and learning about following Jesus. My favorite part of camp was the worship and having fun. What I would like to share is how I felt when I went to camp. When I was at camp, I felt safe because 
When I first got there, they welcomed me with open arms. After that, they made it seem as if all of the kids at camp were family, and that's why I love camp so much. Uh, this was my second year at camp, and I really enjoy camp because of the fun they have and just what they show in God, and I feel this year that I really matured in my relationship with God. And we really worked on like uh, what, it mean, what it really means to be a minion and the particle son. And there's a verse that I really like that we did at camp. It was Luke 15, verse 20. Um, so he got up and went to his father. And when he was still a long ways off, his father saw him, who was filled with compassion for him, ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And this year, uh, I really enjoyed this year of camp. Yeah. <laughs> I really like TFC camp personally. Um, God taught me that we're lost and broken without him and he really, we really need him. I really liked all the counselors there. They took time to get to know every one of us kids. And my favorite part at camp was um, tubing and the water fight. So like I said, there's so much there. And what God spoke to me the most is when we repent, we take that walk home, and repentance is our choice. You can say, I've sinned, and not do anything about it, but when you sin and repent, this is the key. And when you repent and you start walking that road home, God sees you from a distance, and he runs. And that's so amazing, because the only time in the Bible when God's in a hurry to do anything is when he runs. He ran to him. He ran to the prodigal son, and he ran to me. And I remember my repentance, and I was literally a stinky kid. I was hungry and I was a, and he ran to me and he held me and he kissed me. And that to me is, was just so amazing that he ran. The maker of the heavens, of the stars and everything ran to me. That is just so powerful and, and, and it was such a blessing just to, just to paint a picture because that's what I told the kids. I don't want you to make a decision based, I'm not trying to change your mind because if I change your mind, you're going to change your mind back when you get home, I think, the emotion. So we painted a picture all week long of what God will do for a repentant person, how, how overjoyed at one repentant soul. There's a party in heaven. We had a party every Thursday night. It was just a great thing. So um, if you prayed for us, I appreciate the prayers, and we're looking forward to going back next year. So if your kids want to go, you know, we got a whole year to plan it. But um, thanks for the time up here. It was a great experience for everybody. So peace. Good job, guys. Thanks for sharing, and thank you, John, for spending that time, and Jennifer went, too, to dedicate that time to the kids, uh, not just our kids, but all those kids there. And um, one of the, did my daughter leave already? Um, as a father, just sharing from my own, fa from a father's heart real quick, um, you know, I really prayed for Megan and prayed before she left with her, just that God would speak to her. And, um, you know, she came back with what she shared about how she felt safe there and like she was part of a family. But one of the things that, <clears throat> you know, um, she said that she really spoke to her through that was that um, God loved her no matter what. And, you know, as, as parents, we teach our kids these things 
and we raise them in the church, and they hear it, you know, and it's parent chatter, da 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 da. And um, but when God speaks to him, that kind of a thing is pretty cool because um, she said, you know, no matter when I mess up or when I make a mistake, and of course she's turning twelve and she's getting into those teenage years, and you begin to be confronted with yourself, as we all are, where we look in the mirror, we wake up in the morning, and we go, man, I'm just a blow it. I fail. I sin. And we can get kind of tired and discouraged with self. Well, you know, when our kids get to this age, they start to feel that way as well. And when she was spoken to by God, just to that comfort and that assurance that even when she blew it, even when she made a mistake, even when she sinned, God still loved her. And, and for that, <clears throat> that's priceless as a father to hear those kinds of things. So again, thank you, John. And Jennifer, for your guys' heart, for our youth, and um, keep up the good work, and we're excited, what, excited to see what God will continue to do. Um, if you want to open your Bible to uh, first, or excuse me, not First Corinthians, Revelation chapter 4, that's where we're at this morning, and I think I forgot all of my announcements somewhere. Oh well. That's not it. I'll try to remember. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. I had a whole bunch of other things written down, too. Um, one thing I wanted to remind you of, in conjunction with the second or third announcement there, with the potluck and concert on August 31st, what we're going to be doing directly after church that Sunday morning, we're going to go down to the river. <clears throat> this time we're going to go to Duck Park, where the... Uh, where they have the uh, water feature for where they do the rafting and the, the uh, kayaking and that kind of stuff. We'll go to Duck Park, we'll go to that water feature, and we're going to do a baptism. I have two people who have asked to be baptized um, before the summer's over. So if there's anyone else who has not been baptized that has been considering being baptized, I want to encourage you. It's, 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 uh, the Lord instructs it, and, and it's, a, the, it's a step in your walk with the Lord. So here's your opportunity to be baptized and if you wish to do so, please speak to me, and we'll make plans for you to also be baptized that Sunday after church, and that'll all be before the evening time of celebration. And also, the men's retreat's coming up. There's a sign-up sheet for that. Uh, preschool boot camp. Um, uh, where's Christina? Is she in the back? Is she here? There. Christina is uh, working and heading that up with Amy, who was on the worship team up front here today. So if you guys have any questions regarding that, um, please speak to her. It's an opportunity to get your kids perhaps familiar with, with preschool or um, any of your friends or neighbors who might be considering putting their kids in preschool. Here's an opportunity to come and get a, a, a week-long boot camp uh, uh, for them to kind of get a feel and understanding of what's that like and to make a decision perhaps if you'd want to put your kids in. It's going to be kind of like a VBS kind of thing. Is that right, Christina? Yes and no, yeah? Kind of has that more of a feel to it than just an everyday preschool kind of thing, right? A lot of fun stuff. And Christina is the queen of fun stuff. So, um, and then the other announcements you see there. Um, with the preschool, oh, here's all my announcements. With the preschool, um, we have been requesting and asking for volunteers. Uh, we seem to got... The majority of that taken care of. We are still looking for people who would be able to be on a substitute list for the preschool um, uh, when one of these volunteers who are sick or can't make it 
during the week that you'd be willing to maybe be on a call list to come and help with that. Um, speak to Christina or Amy about that as well. And we have, what? Or Robin? Robin is in charge of that. Robin's over there. Raise your hand. Okay. And the last thing to make an announcement of, there's a sign-up sheet in the um, informational area. We have a ministry called On High, and it's, an, it's a, a group that uh, anybody's welcome to be a part of where they uh, go out and do outdoor events and, and celebrate creation that God has done for, has made for us, and um, with a focus on fellowship and prayer. And uh, we have an event coming up the 19th, or the 18th and 19th. Um, it's going to be uh, climbing another 14,000-foot peak, specifically Mount Gray, located in Arapaho National Forest. So there's more details on this sign-up sheet. If you'd like to do that, um, sign up and give a phone number, and you'll be contacted in regards to um, that event. All right, to Revelation chapter 4, if you're there, I'm going to go ahead and pray, and we'll begin. Father, thank you, Lord, so much. Excuse me for this time that we get to have together to to worship you, Lord, to celebrate our salvation that you've given to us through your grace and the forgiveness that we've received, the newness of life and the hope of eternal life. And and Lord, we thank you and just want to celebrate our children and our youth today as we're reminded, God, of just how precious they are and how you've entrusted them to us, Lord, to teach them about you, to show them the way to go. And Father, help us to not ever fall prey to the lies and deceptions of the world and of Satan, Lord, who is so much telling this, the, these, these parents today that just let your kid find their own way. Don't, don't, don't instruct them. Don't teach them. Just let them go. And Lord, we know that's foolishness, Father, that you've given them to us to care for them, to lead them, to teach them, to love them. And Father, help us to be a light in doing so. And Lord, as we study through your word this morning, and get a glimpse into heaven and what waits for us, Father, as your children. Um, Lord, teach us and show us in the way that we may go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, it says, After these things, John speaking, and after these things is a, is a key verse. We see a transition taking place in, in uh, um, uh, this, this book at this point. And so he says... After these things, I looked and beheld a door standing open in heaven. That would be pretty amazing, wouldn't it? If you were to wake up this morning, step outside onto your front porch to pick up your morning paper, and you look up and you beheld a door going into heaven. That would just blow your mind. It would blow my mind. And it was a door that was open. In other words, John could see into heaven through this door. And the first voice which I heard, he said, was a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. And he said, Immediately I was, verse 2, in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat on the throne, or sat there, was like a jasper and a sardis stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. And around the throne were 24 elders. And on the throne, on these thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes. And they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the 
thrones proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices, and seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures, full of eyes in front and back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. And they did not rest day or night, saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures gave glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. <clears throat> and they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. It's a pretty cool chapter that we get to look at here this morning. And um, I was sharing with the gentleman earlier this week as we were talking about what's to come as we go into this study through the book of Revelation. And, 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 and as you see in this chapter, we get this really cool picture, this, little, this really cool look into heaven and, and, and what it's going to be like, this place that is waiting for us, that we're waiting to go to. And as we look at this chapter, I think it helps to keep things in context as you've heard me say over and over again. And if you look back to chapter 1, verse 19, if you remember there, when we were going through that chapter, I pointed out to you that verse 19 gives us an uh, outline for the book of Revelation. And in verse 19, John was told by Jesus to write about these things which you have seen. That was the first thing. The things which are... That is the second thing. And the things which will take place after this. Three specific things that John was told to account for in this book that we're reading of. And in light of this, we can divide the book of Revelation into three sections. And up to this point so far, beginning in chapter 1, we first read about the things which John saw. Specifically, in that chapter, it was the vision that John was given of the resurrected and glorified Jesus Christ, the one who was returning as the conqueror, the lion. And then in chapters 2 and 3, which we've been studying through for a few weeks now, there are the second things, the things which are. And as John wrote down the letters of Jesus that were addressed to the seven churches in Asia Minor, that were existence, in existence back when John was still on the island of Patmos, when this vision and these words were given to him, we know that in addition to those letters being addressed directly to those churches, specifically is that they are also letters that were given in a prophetic way, meaning that they were given to the ages of the church that would come to pass 
the things which are, and the things which are even still today, as we are still presently part of the church age. And now, in light of what we read here in chapter 4, we begin this last section. As John writes about the things which will take place after this. Again, look to verse 1 of chapter 4. To see this, however, the thing that we must take note of here in chapter 4 and into chapter 5, which we'll get into next week, is that both of these chapters are a prelude. They're a prelude to the things that will take place. And in these two chapters, we're given this look into heaven, specifically a glimpse now into the very throne room of God and a look into what is going to be taking place there prior to the judgment and wrath of God that is going to be poured out upon this earth that begins in chapter 6 and on through the rest of the book. The things which will take place after this. And so as we look at that, we read again in verse 1, it says, After these things I, John says, looked and beheld a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard, it was like a trumpet. And again, it, it wasn't a trumpet that John heard. He heard a voice that was like a trumpet, a loud voice, a, a voice that would catch his attention. And this voice was speaking with him saying, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. Now, as we read this and we come into this, we see that John clarifies very first off <clears throat> um, that these are the things that are going to take place after the time in which the church is done and the time in which, the, which God's dealing with the church is over. These are the things that are going to take place after this. And John clarifies all of this by telling us that the voice that he heard while he was looking up into heaven, uh, uh, the, a door that, that, that gave him this vision into heaven, this look into heaven, and he tells us that this voice that he sees is described as being like a trumpet. And the voice commanded John, saying, come up here. Specifically, come up here, and I will show you the things that must take place after this. Now, that phrase... After these things is a compound Greek word, metatauta. And it's the same Greek phrase or the two same Greek words that is used back in chapter 1, verse 19, where we look to the outline for this book. And we know that in that place, John was told that, that he would be um, to write what would take place after this. And in light of this, the reason why I'm detailing all this to the way that I am, because there's a question that we should ask or seek to ask in light of these things. The question of what the after these things is referring to. What is he referring to? What is he speaking of? And as we look back to what we have just studied through with the seven letters to the seven churches, as I said, which speaks in addition to the, the churches directly, but also prophetically to the history of the church, we can see as we keep context and by following this outline that's given to us that the metatauta, the after these things, refers to the events that will take place after the church age that we are living in today 
comes to an end. And we know that it is coming to an end. So right away it appears that the beginning here in chapter 4, continuing on through the end of this book, that we are looking at things which have not yet taken place. If we are still a part of this current, present church age today, we are still looking at things that have yet to come. Things that will take place after this. Once the age of the church has ended. Which leads us to conclude a few things as you if you've ever studied through the book of Revelation, or if you, if you have read through it prior to us studying it now, what you will know is that if these things which we are to read about still are things that are yet to come, then you'll know that there is still yet a future millennial reign of Jesus Christ. In other words, as we read here in the, Old Test or in the book of Revelation, there's coming a time where Christ is yet to still rule and reign upon this earth. And I point that out because there's some who teach that Christ is currently ruling and reigning right now upon this earth. It's a theological point of view that I believe that the Bible doesn't teach. But nevertheless, we're looking forward to that. We are looking forward to the return of Jesus Christ. Specifically, as we read here, a time when we will come back with Him. And if we're coming back with Him for this reign upon the earth, it reasons to conclude that there's going to be a time at the end of the age of this church where we're no longer going to be here. That we're going to be where He is. And we know that Jesus today is seated at the right hand of God the Father here in heaven. And as we read through these two chapters in chapter 5, we'll see specifically that Jesus is in the throne room. And so as we're looking forward to the things that are yet to come, we can also conclude that there is still a pre-tribulation rapture of the church waiting for us. In fact, it appears through John's experience described here in verse 1, if you look there with me specifically, that we will get, that we're given a picture of what will happen to God's people when the church age has ran its course. In other words, the very things that John describes going through here, himself specifically, gives us a picture. And what I mean by that is, is when we look to the tribulation that's coming in the, in the end of the church age, in the rapture of the church, one of the things that we conclude is that like what John saw here, first we know is that heaven will open up for us. And when heaven opens up, we're told that there would be a voice, a voice and the sound of a trumpet calling all of those who are in Christ to come up. And then all believers will be caught up into heaven, which will then begin or usher in the judgment upon the earth, God's judgment upon the earth. And in the book of Thessalonians, this is detailed even more so and in beginning in chapter 4, verses 15 through 18, where it tells us this. It says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that's the verse 15, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who have died, or who, Paul says specifically, referring to that, that, that spiritual sleep, to those who are asleep. He says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, 
And with the voice of an angel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive shall remain, or we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus, verse 18, we shall always be with the Lord. I point this out to you this morning, just not for doctrinal reasons, but to give you more of an encouragement. Because even through this prelude, we're getting a glimpse of what's waiting for us. This is our blessed hope. This is what we cling to when this life becomes unbearable. When things become discouraging and we're overwhelmed, not only with the circumstances around us, but with the sin that sometimes reigns still at times in us. That we have this blessed hope, that we have this assurance. And it is what the church currently refers to as the rapture. The time when God will step out of heaven, the Son of God, and He will say to us as we see Him in the clouds, come up here. And there we will be with him forevermore. In light of my understanding of prophecy and in times events, I want you to know that, that there's nothing left on the prophetic calendar that has to take place before this awesome event that we are expectingly waiting for to take place. There's nothing left. Even though no man knows the exact day or the exact hour, I think each one of us can truly sense deep within us that Jesus' return is near. That it is soon. That we too could step out and look up and see that day of redemption when we go to be with the Lord. That we leave this world and all that is in it behind And so as we look to these two chapters, chapters 4 and 5, as a prelude to God pouring out His wrath upon the earth, we are shown here what is going to be taking place in heaven. And we're given an awesome glimpse, an awesome look of what heaven is like. Now this isn't the fullness of heaven, this isn't everything that heaven is. But we get a picture, we get an idea of what heaven must be like from this little glimpse into the very throne room of God. And we see some pretty amazing things. And in verse 2, the first thing John says that he saw or that he beheld was that there was a throne in heaven. And one who sat on the throne. And even though John does not come right out and say who is sitting on the throne, it's pretty obvious that the only person who could be sitting on this throne would be God the Father. Considering again, like I mentioned earlier in chapter 5, we see Jesus, God the Son, the Lamb of God, coming into the throne room in chapter 5. Coming before this very throne that God the Father is sitting on. And not only that, we know it's God the Father and it's not God the Son. We also know it's not God the Holy Spirit in that sense. Because a little later on in verse 5, if you look where I read there, we see God the Holy Spirit being depicted as one who's before the throne as well. God the Father, the Lord Almighty God, as we read here in verse 8, as even the living creatures, the, the four living creatures with these, these, these angelic beings that are, I mean, I'd like to see a picture of them. I don't think I'd ever want to meet them in person, but 
um, is they cry out, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. The Creator is the one who is upon this throne, ruling and reigning from this place. Now John went on to describe this person, this God, our God, the Creator, the one who is seated upon this throne, and he does so with some pretty amazing imagery. Saying first in verse 3, that he who sat on the, on the throne was like a jasper and a sardis stone in appearance. Now, I've never seen a jasper or a sardis stone firsthand. I don't know exactly what that looks like. And, and furthermore, John says that even though there was this appearance that came forth as jasper and sardis, he said there was even a rainbow around the throne, and it had the appearance of an emerald. And I've seen an emerald before. I know what that looks like. But as we're given a look into the throne room of God, I don't think we need to rely upon our own understanding or our own wisdom even in trying to discern these things. <clears throat> we can look to the Word of God and find out specifically what's going on. And I want, I want to remind you that without an understanding of the Old Testament... A lot of these things which are descriptive to us here in our text can be confusing. If we don't look to the Old Testament, if we don't use the Old Testament, if we don't have an understanding of the Old Testament. I told you before that this book is a very Jewish book. And, and, and if you were a Jew and you had a familiar with your culture and your religion and the Old Testament, these things that aren't familiar to us, which would be familiar to them, would begin to unlock things in their mind. It would draw connections for them and give explanations to what John is trying to describe to us. And furthermore, as we begin to discern these things, I've, you've heard me say in the past that the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. And so when we come to passages like this that offer a, symbol, a symbolic illustration for us in order to describe something, we don't have to come to our own conclusions or offer our own opinions what, in what they may be. Rather, we can look directly to the Word of God and know for sure. The other very important thing that we must keep in mind as we go forward from this point, these two chapters of prelude, and then on into the remaining chapters that have all kinds of symbolism and, and, and graphic illustrations, one of the things that we need to remember is this. I can't stress this enough. It's all about Jesus. It all points us to Jesus. And if we're missing that, then we're missing what's trying to be communicated to us. It's all about Jesus. And by using the Old Testament as a guide to help us understand these things that are figuratively described throughout the book of Revelation, we can, we, can, we, can, we can gain a correct biblical understanding. Remember, as we keep this in mind that it's all about Jesus, Jesus in John chapter 5, verses 39 through 40, speaking to the Pharisees in his day who were full of spiritual blindness, Jesus said to them, You search the Scriptures, for in them you think that you have eternal life. And these are they, he said, which testify of me. He says, But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. In other words, again, it's all about Jesus. Furthermore, at the end of this book, in Revelation chapter 19, verse 10, it says this, it says, The essence of prophecy is to give a clear witness for Jesus. 
This book is a book of prophecy. It tells us about the completion of all things, these end-time events that are to come to pass. And as we keep Jesus as the focal point, as the center of it, it unlocks correct understanding. And as we gaze into the throne room of God, it helps us to know about the tabernacle and the temple because in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23, it clearly tells us that the tabernacle and the temple were both copies of of what? Of heaven, of this heavenly reality that John is now attempting to describe to this, that John's now attempting to describe to us. The other thing that I want to point out to you is that in light of all of this um, that we're seeing and reading and, and talking about context and, and seeing that it's all about Jesus, I want you to remember that the, the very things that John is attempting to describe to us the Apostle Paul, who was also given a glimpse into heaven, once said that it would be a crime for him if he even tried to describe what he saw because he felt there was not sufficient words that could justly describe it. Keep that in mind. Nevertheless, we know that John was commanded to do so. He was instructed to write down these things that he heard, these things that he saw, and in doing so, first thing that John noticed or that he gives to us or he communicates to us is this these 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 describing the person of God with with these with this imagery of these precious stones to sit, to tell us what God looked like to him when he was there and John said here in verse 3 that he looked like a jasper and a sardis stone in appearance which I think as we look at this is given us a description of this light that radiated out from God. But John also tells us about seeing a rainbow around the throne which looked like an emerald. And certainly all of these things together had to be beautiful. But when we consider the specific details that John used to describe what he saw alongside what we read and know about in the Old Testament where these very same stones are mentioned, right? The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. So as you begin to look at these things, we should go, where else in the Bible does it talk about things like this? And as we look to the Word of God where these same stones are mentioned, you're given, we are given a really awesome picture of what all of this represents, what all of this means. And if you turn to Exodus chapter 28, you'll see what I mean. Because in Exodus chapter 28, verses 5 through 21, we, are, we read or we're, we're told about the garments that the high priest wore. The high priest that ministered in the tabernacle and in the temple, and specifically in verses 17 through 21, we're told about the breastplate of the high priest, that breastplate which he wore, which had within it 12 precious stones. And each, on each one of the stones was engraved a name. One of the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And these stones, they were arranged in, in four rows according to their birth order of the twelve sons of Israel. The first stone was Sardis. 
The very first stone was a Sardis stone. The same stone that's mentioned here. And we we know that the Sardis stone was blood red in color. And on this stone was the name Reuben, which name means, his name means, see a son. He was the firstborn. And that was reflected in his name. See a son was engraved on it. The last stone on the breastplate was the jasper. You have the sardis, which was the first on the breastplate, and you have the jasper, which was the last on the breastplate. And according to Revelation chapter 21, verse 11, there's another mention of the jasper stone. In that, in chapter 21, verse 11, it describes the light that's going to be in the heavenly city that God creates once things are all done. The heavenly city of God, and it says that the light which emanates there from the Son of God is, is, a, is, clear, is as clear as a crystal like the jasper stone. Now the name that is graved on the jasper stone in the breastplate of the high priest was the name of Benjamin. And his name means this, son of the right hand. So here in this description of light that was seen coming from God, we see several things. To begin with, we see the first and the last. Which again points to the fact that God is the beginning and the end of all things. Next, the color of the stones which are significant. The first being the blood red color of the Sardis. It should remind us of the blood of Jesus that was spilt to redeem us. And how we see the Son and are saved. How we look in faith upon Jesus and upon His sacrifice in order to receive that salvation that God has made available to us through the Son. Furthermore, the crystal clear white of the jasper speaks of the purity of the Son of God, who according to Hebrews chapter 12, as I already mentioned, verse 2, in conjunction with the name of Benjamin, son of the right hand, we know that Jesus is risen, that He is ascended, and He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. But equally important is this picture, and this picture is the rainbow, which we know from the account in Genesis chapter 9, which tells of Noah and of the flood. We know from there that the rainbow is a promise. Not only is it a promise that God will never ever destroy the earth again with water, but it is a promise and it is a reminder ultimately of God's grace and of God's mercy. And this grace and mercy is what is pictured to be all around the throne of God. And we see that it is as the appearance of an emerald. And according to Exodus chapter 28, if you look back to the breastplate that the priest wore, the emerald was the third stone in the breastplate that the high priest wore. And on this stone was engraved the name of Levi. We know that Levi, Levi was the one from which the priestly tribe came. It was the priestly tribe and the priest came from them and his name means joined or attached. And it points us to the fact that it is, I think that it's the grace and mercy of God which has come through the blood of Jesus 
who was the perfect sacrifice that adjoins us or attaches us to God the Father. Now in verse 4, as we go on, John says here, he says that around the throne were 24, were 24 thrones. And on these 24 thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their head. As we look at this next picture of what's going on here in the throne room of God, these 24 elders give us another picture of the church being in heaven. It gives us a picture of the church being in heaven and before the very presence of God during the seven years of tribulation, which are to come as they themselves represent the church. This is evident by a few things, that they are representative of the church. The first thing that proves to us or, or demonstrates to us that they are representative of the church is the fact that they have these white robes on, clothed in white, which according to Revelation chapter 19, verse 8, are, this, are, are, are robes like what the bride of Christ wears or are given for all the righteous acts. We, the church, being the bride of Christ. But it is also evident by the crowns of gold on their head, which according to verse 10 tells us that they then cast these crowns down before the, 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 the feet of God, before the throne of God, as they worship Him. In fact, these crowns are described throughout the entire New Testament where we are told that they will be given to us, those who make up the church, those who are the sons and daughters of God, as rewards. And in total, as you study through the New Testament, you see that there are a total of five crowns that can be given. The incorruptible crown. The crown of rejoicing. The crown of life. The crown of righteousness. And the crown of glory. And so, by the robes that they are wearing, and by their crowns we can determine who these 24 elders are. But another evidence to support the fact that they are representative of the church is the fact that there's 24 of them. That number is significant. Again, if we look back to the Old Testament, we see why. We see a connection. We see a correlation. And if you look back to the Old Testament, specifically to Chronicles, 1 Chronicles chapter 24, we read of a time when King David was setting up the tabernacle and establishing the priestly ministry there of the tabernacle. And we know that David, he divided up all the descendants of Aaron, of this tribe of Levi, who were priests that would serve into the temple. And he divided them into, does anybody know? 24 divisions into groups of 24. And David did this in order at that time to establish a, a schedule of service so that each one of the sons of Aaron and the descendants that came after them would have this equal opportunity to serve in the temple, in the tabernacle. And so through this number, that, and through this, we see that this number 24 really represents the completeness or the whole of the priesthood. Now, we must keep in mind that a priest is one who goes before God. A priest is one who goes before God on behalf of the people. 
And we can deduct that these 24 elders are priests because in Revelation chapter 5, if you look ahead with me, specifically to verse 8, we read that these 24 elders are coming before God, and when they do so, they have the prayers, we're told, of the saints as they go before this throne of God. But it's also important to note that they are pictured as royal priests because they are seen sitting upon thrones, And they are seen wearing gold crowns. In fact, in chapter 5, verse 10, the song that these 24 elders sing is a song that gives praise to the Lamb of God for making them, it says there in chapter 10, or in chapter 5, verse 10, and you and he has made us kings and priests to our God. You have made us kings and priests to our God. And this is exactly how the church is described, is it not? Is not the church described in this very way in 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10? In these verses it says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light, who were once, who once were not a people, but now are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So before the throne of God, we clearly have the church who is the royal priest of God, represented by these 24 elders. And in verse 5, it says, from the throne of God, as, as John looked on, he said, proceeding from the throne of God were lightnings, thunderings, and voices. And these things, as a prelude to what is coming, illustrate for us, or they, they show us and point us to the coming storm of judgments that will proceed from God, which are described in detail in the chapters that are to follow. But also before the throne of God, according to verse 5, is the seven lamps of fire, it tells us, which are the seven spirits of God. And that's also mentioned previously back in chapter 1. And now this is where the understanding of the tabernacle begins to help in order for us to discern some of these things. The tabernacle being really a a model of what is in heaven. And if we look to the tabernacle, we see first of all that this seven lamps of fire is a Jewish menorah. And the one in the temple is described in detail for us in Exodus chapter 25. And the lamp itself was located within the holy place, not within the most holy of the holies, but in the holy place, actually on the left side of the table, or left side of the, of the holy place, opposite of the table of show, which held the twelve loaves of bread, one for each of the tribes of Israel, as represented by. And so we have the seven spirits of God represented by the seven or by this lamp of seven fires that are burning in heaven. And it's before the throne of God we are given here, we're told here, John sees it at a time when the lightnings and when the thunderings and when the voices come forth from God. And we see that there's a connection by this being made to us to the future ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
And what I mean by that, it's not that the Holy Spirit has a new ministry, it's just the Holy Spirit is still continuing to minister during this time. You know, the seven lamps depicts that sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit. And as I mentioned to you before, if you want to look back to Isaiah chapter 11, I'm not going to go back over that. You see that sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit being depicted. And we're told that even though the church is snatched away and the Holy Spirit of God dwelling inside of us, we know that the ministering of the Holy Spirit is still taking place even as God's judgment and wrath is being poured out. The Holy Spirit is still convicting the world of sin and doing everything that He does during this time. Furthermore, in light of the fact that the lamps are burning, we see this as an act of God's grace, as an act of God's mercy. John said it in a really cool way earlier when he was talking about the prodigal son. He says, God is not in a hurry to do anything except to run to His children. And as we look forward after these two chapters and see the wrath of God, the judgment of God being poured out, we see that it's constantly being done with restraint. God is not quick to judge. God is not quick to pour out His wrath. God is a God who is long-suffering. God is a God of mercy. God is a God of grace. And His will is that none would perish, that all might be saved. Continuing on in verse 6, it says, Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature was like a calf, and the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes all around and within, and they do not rest, it says, day or night, saying, Holy Holy, holy Lord, God Almighty, who was and is to come. Now, the sea of glass is interesting as we see this. And we're first told that it is like crystal. And, and as we look to the tabernacle, we see this glass being depicted both in the tabernacle and in the temple. And in the tabernacle, it was depicted as a bronze laver. There's a big basin that was made out of bronze that rested on a pedestal. Likewise, in, in the Temple of Solomon, it is described as a bronze sea. And nowhere within any of the accounts in the Old Testament or any of the instructions of the temple do we see a size or a dimension that's given to this. But I imagine within Solomon's temple, it had to have been massive. As it was given, it went from being the laver or a basin to being described as a sea. And this bronze sea, if you will... Was, a, was, was filled with water and it was located between the temple of meeting where the people would gather <clears throat> there before the, the altar of God or the altar of sacrifice. And this basin was, the, was, was where the priests would perform all of their ceremonial washing before, during, and after the sacrifices were made. And according to Exodus chapter 30, verse 20, if any of the priests failed to perform these ceremonial washings, which were really which were symbolic of sanctification, of being cleansed or pure or holy or set apart for God, if they failed to do so, we're told in Exodus chapter 20 that they would die. God said, hey, you either do this or you die. You either present yourself as holy, sanctified, set apart 
unto me by washing in this sea as you minister for the people before me. You either do this, God says, or you die. And it's this picture of this of, of, of that in order to come into the presence of God, in order to be in the presence of God, there must be righteousness, there must be holiness, there must be purity. And in light of this fact of the, of the washing and the bronze laver and the ceremonial act of cleansing and purification that, that, that took place, we see this sea of glass now clear as a crystal here in heaven. It appears to ultimately be the foundation for the very throne of God. And it is a picture really of God's righteousness, of God's holiness, And in Proverbs 16, verse 12, it says that a throne is established on righteousness. In the psalmist, in Psalm 89, verse 14, it says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. Now, as we look a little further on and we see these four angelic creatures all around the throne worshiping God, we see something I think that we might expect to see when we look into heaven, right? When I think about heaven, I think about these kinds of things, seeing supernatural things, angelic things that we don't see in our everyday realm. And clearly they're, they're um, hard to imagine even as you think about what John's writing here. Yet their description is very similar when you look back to the book of Ezekiel. In the book of Ezekiel, in chapters 1 and chapters 10, you have a description of some of these angelic beings that, 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 that Ezekiel saw, and the description is very familiar. You don't, you, it says that they have faces, but it doesn't describe the faces like we see here in heaven. And in light of this connection to the book of Ezekiel, there's a lot that could be said about these angelic creatures, especially knowing that Ezekiel is a book of prophecy as well. But for now, I want to simply point out that the faces that we are, we are told about here that these angels had, which was a lion, a calf, a man, and a flying eagle, they're really all symbolic of the whole of creation. One of the things that directs our attention to that is that as God goes on to be worshipped by these, these creatures and by the 24 elders, they are worshipping God on the throne as the Creator. And the fact that they are before God's throne reminds us of something very cool. It reminds us that God's in control of all of creation. Not only that, it reminds us of the fact that God will keep His promise to one day deliver all of creation from the bondage of sin. Remember, the whole of creation, we're told, is still waiting for that deliverance, that day of deliverance. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 19 through 23, it says this, it says, the creation, all of it, waits eagerly in expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration. Not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself one day will be be liberated from this bondage of decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. And we know that the whole of creation has been groaning as as in the pains of childbirth right up until this present time, he says. 
Not only so, but we ourselves who have this first fruits of the Spirit, we all groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoptions as sons and the redemption of our bodies. That day when we'll be set free from the curse, when all of creation will be set free. And in verse 9, as we wrap it up, it says that whenever the living creatures, these creatures give this glory and honor and thanks to God who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever. And so we're told in verse 10 that the 24 elders of the church and all that is there join together, falling down before Him who sits on the throne, and they worship. And they worship the Lord forever and forever. So we know where the 24 elders are, but more importantly than who they are is what are they doing? What are they doing there? What are they saying as they are before the very presence of God? And as these elders are seen casting their crowns before the throne of God and, and really offering songs of praise, we see that the worship of the Lord God Almighty is an active part of what we're going to be doing in heaven. You know, I don't know about you, but I love those times of worshiping the Lord here on this earth, whether it's with you guys corporately or it's when I have my, my, my headphones in and, and, and I'm mowing the lawn and, or, I, or I'm by myself and I'm worshiping the Lord and hopefully nobody's listening when I'm doing that because it probably doesn't sound so good. But it's, it's that idea of being taken out of this world and into the presence of God where nothing else matters, where everything fades away. Where it is, as some of these kids say, as they've been experiencing camp, where the love of God is felt, where the, where the uh, acceptance of God is, is revealed, where all of these things that we long for and security and protection and care and comfort and peace and joy is all being manifested at the very same time. To that place of worship, to that place of praise before the very presence of God. We're going to end with this if the worship team wants to come up. And as we see these elders casting their crowns before the throne and offering the songs of praise, we see this. We see that the worship of the Lord God Almighty is this active part of what we're going to be doing in heaven. But furthermore, when we get to heaven and we see all that God has prepared for us, and when we get to heaven and we see the face of our Creator with our own eyes, we will realize, I believe, in a fresh way, in a new way, in a way that we've never even been able to comprehend or conceive here on this earth, we will, we will receive and understand this truth that all praise and all, and all honor and all glory belongs to God and God alone. Let's pray. Father, I pray, Lord, that You would help us as we even get a glimpse into heaven, Lord, and, and into what is waiting for us, this reality of our future hope, that we too today, God, would be moved to this place where we are in offering our lives as a sacrifice to You, lifting our voices in praise to You, Lord, and, and understanding and knowing that by whatever we say and that by whatever we do, it should be done to Your glory and to Your honor because it's all for You. You deserve it all. Father, You've given us everything. 
Lord, you've given us a life when we had none. You've given us hope when we've had none. Father, you've given us forgiveness of sins even though we don't deserve it. Father, you brought us in and made us your sons and your daughters. As John even said with an awesome picture again, Lord, as, 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 as stinky little kids living alone with no place to go, no home, Father, but you brought us in. And Father, we look forward to that day when this world passes away. Lord, when we be caught up together, when you command us with your own voice to come up here. And Father, I pray that, that, your, that your return would be near, that it would be quick that it would come quickly, Lord, that we would be ready, that we would be expectant, that we would be anticipating your arrival for us. And Father, in the meantime, as we wait, Lord, fill us with peace that surpasses the understanding, Lord, of the situations that we also find ourselves in, of the world, Lord, that is quickly fading away, is growing dark. Lord, help us to stand for you in this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.